Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christ Church Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. Okay, thank you so much. We're going to get ourselves started. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is uh, an incredible opportunity for us to learn from some wonderful psychologists who are both involved in research as well as practice and are able to get some into living through uh, is a uh, kind of a culmination of an incredibly time since the beginning of the pandemic to understand what's going on uh, with this uh, pandemic psychologically. And one book that we spent a lot of time on was The Psychology of Pandemics, which was by Stephen Taylor. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Taylor says in his book is that the a shadow of a pandemic, psychologically speaking, is greater than the pandemic itself. And by that he meant that there is almost always in the wake of a pandemic, a kind of shadow of psychology, of psychological issues that remain. Issues around anxiety, issues around addiction, issues around depression, all of these things tend to, to, to um, continue after the pandemic passes. So we wanted to uh, create an opportunity for us to learn and to grow um, and to be prepared to meet some of the shadow that we're going to be encountering over the next few months. And I'm extraordinarily grateful that we have two parishioners who are going to be joining us today as presenters, uh, Dr. Stephen Huprick and Dr. Jordan Brakazuski. Uh, they are joined by Dr. Barry Delfin. And um, we will be listening to each for about 20 minutes. And if you have questions, feel free to type them into the uh, chat box and we will uh, keep those in mind as people are making their presentations. Um, once we have a moment to um, deal with some of the questions that come up in the chat and with some feedback from the clergy, then we'll open it up to you. So uh, I'm so grateful to have you all here. Um, I know most of you who are here, but this is an incredibly important uh, 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 time for us. And I want to open with a bit of prayer, and then we'll get ourselves started. So without further ado, the Lord be with you. With you. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that we are in the midst of starting to make a turn during this pandemic in which Infections are starting to go down and vaccinations continue to slowly climb and we are beginning to experience the new normal. We give you thanks that you have been present in many ways, even in the midst of disease and death and even in the midst of, of some moral awakening that we've had to do during this pandemic, even in the midst of the anxiety that many of us have felt, we thank you that you have been present in our lives. We thank you that you have given us um, this church with so many good leaders and so many good people who are willing to grow and to learn 
and to live and to love uh, in your name. And we ask that you would bless and consecrate this time together. Help us to, um, to focus on this wonderful seminar. Um, bless all that we have given up to be here tonight. Bless all that we take on in our lives. Bless those who uh, depend upon us and bless those uh, we depend on. And be with us and open our eyes and hearts and minds as we seek to know you as you are revealed in the midst of everything, as your son Jesus Christ has promised. Amen. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Stephen and he'll offer a bit of introduction to our panelists and then he'll give the first presentation. Thank you, Father Bill. Um, I hope that um, my slides are coming up on everyone's screen. Uh, great. And so, um, you know, this was the, the title of the presentation tonight, and it was about two months ago that Father Bill reached out uh, and, and had some interest in, you know, would it make sense to do a, a webinar about uh, the pandemic and how people are, are doing with that? And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And of course, the next question was, would you be willing to participate and take this on? <laughs> and uh, I was happy to do so. And um, you know, last week or two weeks ago, we had uh, Dr. Julie Brakazuski present, uh, who just did a really wonderful job. Um, I think many of you attended that. And tonight, um, you know, our focus will be um, on sort of sort of all of us as you know, in, in sort of in the adult population. Though I know Dr. Dauphin will be speaking um, some about children and adolescents, um, kind of speaking from his experience as a clinician. Um, I'm just going to do a brief introduction. Um, I have some information up here about all of us. Um, you know, I'm a professor at University of Detroit Mercy and uh, an adjunct to Michigan State. Uh, I practice out of Northville, Michigan, um, in, in independent practice. Um, and I've um, been involved in some professional societies that you see there. Um, most of you tonight on the webinar know me probably through the parish. And as you recall, last year I was a senior warden during the brunt of the pandemic. So not only uh, living it uh, at home, living it uh, through the university and living in the practice, but also living it here in the parish and knowing um, all the effects it had on us. Um, now we are also fortunate tonight to have Jordan Brakazuski, who is an associate research scientist in the Center for Health Policy and Health Services Research at Henry Ford. Um, he, um, I believe his primary work is there, but he also um, works through Monarch Behavioral Health, which is run and managed by his wife, Julie. Um, and he has um, procured in his career $8 million in grant funding, which those of you who have any uh, exposure to academic grant money, you know that that's quite a challenge. Um, Jordan, is there anything else you'd like to maybe share briefly about yourself with our, with our group tonight? Just that I'm excited to be here and, and happy to learn uh, from the both of you and share with everybody else. Great, thank you. And then I'm also really delighted to have my colleague, Dr. Barry Dauphin, uh, who I work with at the University of Detroit Mercy. Um, Dr. Dauphin is professor in the clinical psychology PhD program at Detroit Mercy. Um, he's been in independent practice in Birmingham uh, for a number of years. and. Um, recently completed a term as the president of Division 39 of the American Psychological Association, which is a division of psychoanalysis, which uh, I believe has about 2,000 members. 
So um, he had uh, his, his work cut out for him and I know he did some of that work during the pandemic. Um, uh, Barry, is there anything else you would like to say and or, or mention about yourself? Um, thanks, thanks, Steve. Um, I'm very grateful to be here uh, this evening and look forward to everyone's presentation and our discussion. And just a little correction, we have over 3,000 members. Oh, in thank you. So it was even harder yeah. than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. 3,000 psychologists is a lot to manage, that's for sure. So um, I want to begin uh, just with this picture that I, I found. And um, I really like this picture because I think it captures a lot of the experience that we've had over the past uh, 14 to 15 months. You can see in the picture that we have many choices here um, and many decisions to make um, and which way we want to go and how we want to proceed. You'll see there's no clear guidance on which is the right path to go and how to go forward. Um, and there's also no ending in this picture. And, um, and I think that this just so um, eloquently captures um, uh, the experience that so many of us have had these past several months and what we lived through, um, even thinking a year ago um, at this time where we were um, at that point. Um, I wanted to just mention three things here, but I think that are really important when we think about mental health um, and sort of how we fared through the pandemic and as we look ahead. Um, I'm stating the obvious here when I say a pandemic is an extraordinary and very difficult event. I, I want you to think about extraordinary events that you may have had. You know, many of us have maybe had a surgery or an accident that we needed to recover from. Um, We've had maybe job changes or move. These are extraordinary events in our life. Um, but I would imagine that for most of these, we never really had to sit with the question of and, and stop to think about how safe am I in this world that's around me? Um, how bad is this gonna get? Um, even like with an injury or surgery, many times they tell you, yeah, you're gonna have a few days of pain and it's gonna slowly get better. We know what to expect, and we didn't have that. Um, we also had to wonder, gosh, where I'm at now in this house that I live in, in this location, is this gonna work? You know, I now have to do everything out of this facility. How, how is this gonna work? How am I gonna be okay? Um, how will I get food? You know, that was a question for a while, just how do we go about doing that in a safe way? How do we reach out to our support network? You know, we can't just um, run into them at work, go down the street to see a friend. That's, you know, that, that's not going to work. And then finally, when will this end? Um, so pandemics truly are extraordinary and very difficult. It's also important to remember that individuals adapt to extraordinary events, whether they know it or not. And um, I think of two examples in my life, not pandemic related, but um, just as, as examples that maybe some of you can relate to. Um, my wife and I moved to Michigan from Texas in 2004, and the week that we arrived, it was 85 degrees in the middle of July. And um, having come from Texas, we thought, oh, 85, that's not so bad because we were used to 100. Um, and everybody around us was, uh, oh, this is so miserable. And we're like, that's eh, not so bad. One year later, 85 degrees was miserable for us. And, um, and, you know, without us knowing it, our bodies had adjusted to what was in front of us. Um, another example, um, and some of you are aware that uh, a number of years ago, 
um, I was working out of state and commuting back and forth. And, uh, and, and I had to fly home and it was a connecting flight. And I was coming home every weekend just about. And um, I would leave late on a Thursday night, get back Sunday night. And I think about, you know, how, you know, back and forth, connecting flight, all this. How did I do this? I mean, how did I keep my wits about me? And I just did it. And, um, and I suspect many of us can, can think about times in our lives where we just had to do something. And before you know it, this is how it is. And, and so I suspect for a number of us, that's how our life has been throughout the pandemic here. And that, you know, as we stop now and as we're looking ahead, we realize, gosh, there's some things we've adjusted to. We didn't even know it. And then finally, um, it's anticipated that extraordinary and very difficult events can lead to extraordinary and very difficult or complex patterns of adapting. Um, and, uh, you know, in some uh, vignettes I'm going to share in a moment, I think this will become evident um, in how that happens. But, you know, when you think about work, family, uh, personal life, social life, um, sort of internal issues that we're thinking of, how we want to improve our life. And then you put all those things that we deal with in everyday life. And now our basic safety is compromised. Our basic activities are compromised. There's many, many moving parts. And so um, those adaptations and changes to that were very likely to, at times, have become uh, difficult or complex. Um, in preparing for this, I found an, a, a publication from the Center for Disease Control, and they did a survey almost a year ago to date um, of over 5,400 adults in the U.S., and it was an online survey. And um, I want to report, just show you some of the statistics that they found. 25% um, reported symptoms of an anxiety disorder, 24% of a depressive disorder, 263 reported traumatic symptoms of any kind related to COVID, 13% starting or increasing substance abuse due to COVID-19, almost 11% in one week said they seriously considered suicide in the past seven days, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal number. And then finally, 41% roughly reported any psychiatric disorder. Um, I wanna show you, this is a, a survey from a year before the pandemic. And um, I just wanna point out a couple of numbers in here that, um, and I don't know if you can see my arrow, but this is the overall percentage of, or the overall prevalence of any mental illness in the US in 2019, 20.6%. And in that one week in June, a year ago, we were at 41%. Um, and so you can see the pandemic has had really a very remarkable effect on us. Um, just a few other statistics uh, and, and surveys that I found. This is both from the UK and the United States. Um, so in July 2019 to March 2020 in the UK, um, about 10% of the adults survey reported symptoms of depression. But in June of 2020, that number was 19%. It was worse in the US. Um, in, and, and this is, um, I think this will become clear on the next slide. I'm not sure if that 2019 is a typo. I don't think it is, but it, it doesn't really matter. You can see 11% in that time period in the U.S. reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression. December, you know, just six months ago, 42% were reporting symptoms. 
Here, here's some similar, similar kinds of data just broken down a bit more. You can see um, in this uh, bar graph here that we have yellow, uh, pink, and purple that represents sort of the January to June 2019, then May of 2020, and December of 2020. And here you see symptoms of anxiety disorder, symptoms of depressive disorder, and symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder. But you can see pre-pandemic rates here pretty low. A um, few months into the pandemic, the rates are, are much more elevated. And as recently as December, the anxiety and depressive symptoms have been elevated. Um, and then finally, just looking worldwide, um, this was an interesting graph to me, uh, just you know, a survey of adults who experienced stress, anxiety, or sadness that was difficult to cope with alone during the pandemic. And the United States leads the way in terms of 33%, only next coming closest to Canada and the UK. So we've had a rough go of it here in the US and by all accounts that's continuing. Um, I don't know any colleague who is not filled in their practice schedule. In fact, um, I have about 12 to 15 people who are on a waiting list to see me who I've also provide some referrals for others. Um, and, and most people I know are, are full. So the, the need is very strong at the present time. Um, I wanna just share briefly um, some vignettes of two patients that I saw during the pandemic here. Um, and they're very similar. And um, I wanna talk just a little bit about um, sort of the presenting issues and um, how they were resolved. And actually uh, I have a good, good outcomes or, or improved outcomes to talk about. So um, these are both two married male, male patients, um, both uh, one in uh, around 50, the other 70. Um, both of these individuals were referred by their wife and the initial contact with me was from their wives. Um, both of these women described their husbands as narcissistic. Um, I have an expertise and interest in personality disorders. And so I do get a number of calls for individuals um, seeking treatment for narcissistic or borderline personality. Um, and then um, I would hear concerns about anger being out of control. So I told both of them to have the, the husbands call me, and so they did. And um, the first man comes in, and, and his wife had gone on and this, uh, you know, about how terrible this guy was. His anger is out of control. He frightens people. And so I was really prepared for um, what I thought was gonna be a pretty difficult person. And so this somewhat quiet, meek person, um, or, you know, in his late 60s, early 70s, comes into my office. And, um, you know, when we start talking about this, and, and so I'm, I'm finding myself thinking, boy, this, this, this man seems pretty pleasant. Um, he's kind of quiet and shy, but he seems friendly. And he starts to talk about the difficulties with his wife and how he tries to, you know, explain some things to her to help her, but she gets angry and frustrated with him. Um, she has things that he wants, that she wants him to do. Um, he explains why it's not a good time to do them. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head a bit, like, well, what's going on here? So we, we eventually decide I should talk to his wife. And so his wife comes in with um, pages of notes about all the problems. And, and she recounts the stories that he's told me that in, in a lot of detail, 
And, um, and in the process of that is, is recounting things from the relationship from many years back. And, um, and she brings in pictures of some projects and I, and I can't understand why she's frustrated about a few things, but uh, I can certainly see here that um, this is a couple in great distress. Um, I, I forgot to say very importantly that um, he, um, he was retired and, um, and so was she. And they tended to live pretty independent lives, didn't interact much, but with the retirement, they were spending more time together. And of course, with the pandemic, they were um, always together. And so all kinds of conflict ensued. Um, long story short is that, um, you know, I, I really first and foremost validated his experience of how hard it is um, maybe to live with her at times. I came to understand uh, he's very conflict avoidant. He tries to be very patient, but there's moments when he could explode. And um, but most of the time he walks away. And so we talked a lot about ways to engage with her that um, she would feel listened to. Um, maybe it would be a good idea to do a few of the things she would like and just to remain calm uh, during these things and not walk away. Um, and the relationship got better. And one of the things that um, he, he said is that it was very helpful just to talk with somebody about this and to be understood. And what I realized is that he had never had anyone to really talk to about this, being very avoidant uh, of his emotions and what was he was experiencing. Um, second patient, very briefly, very similar. This, this individual was working. His wife had some disabilities. Um, same kinds of thing. Um, wife contacted me, he's this terrible person. Um, and I meet with him very friendly, very nice. Um, and, and as you might imagine, a similar sort of dynamic ensued. I thought I should meet with her. And I've never um, heard a more contradictory account where both, both individuals agreed on here's the problem, but um, the facts and the intentions behind the behaviors were completely attributed to the other person. And so it was very clear they were very misaligned. Um, we ended up doing psychological testing on him and um, helped him come to understand some things about himself, about his uh, avoidance of emotion, um, about um, his, his tendency to just simplify things and try to see things in a very straightforward way. Um, and, and you know, through the result of the testing process, got a lot of feedback about himself and actually took a lot of curiosity in himself and um, is really committed to the therapy process. Why I share these examples is that it kind of shows you that here's, here's a relational pattern that has a lot of complexity to it, where you have two individuals, both of whom have their own shortcomings and weaknesses, but that the pandemic and this more regular contact uh, and more time together um, put them into situations where the conflicts between them were just magnified and it really blew up. And um, fortunately, both, both individuals had, had shown interest in getting better. Both reported some things improving. Um, not perfect, far from perfect, but getting better. And um, things were moving along in a good way. Um, I can share just a, an account, a personal account for myself when the pandemic first began. Um, and this was about two weeks after the university had shut down and it was a Sunday evening and I had a voicemail 
from the human resources department at the university. And they said, I need, we need to talk to you about something. And I was like, oh my gosh, am I getting fired? What, what's happening here? So I called and um, I was told, we need to tell you you've been exposed to somebody who's tested positive for COVID. And, um, and so they, they told me, you know, keep, keep symptoms, you need to call this number to get, get assessed. Well, um, after that, my fear was, was pretty high. Um, my wife and I were actually talking at the time about the need to revise our will. And I said, I think maybe we better call the attorney, you know, and get this revised. And I said, yeah, I know I'm, I'm sounding a little anxious about this. But, you know, again, here it was, we didn't know much and um, the worst fears uh, came up. Well, we're now several months later and um, we're re-entering. And so um, we're getting back to everyday life, which I think is what you know, we'll hopefully talk more about here. But um, just again, sort of some of the challenges of re-entering. So I was actually um, at the church about a month ago for a meeting on our construction project. And I got to meet some people who I only known online. We were in a room together. We were all without a mask because masks were no longer required. Everybody in the room was vaccinated. So we shook hands and we had our meeting and um, the meeting ended. And I thought to myself, I just shook hands with all these people, you know, or several of my, oh no. And so I, meeting ended, I got to my car and I got the hand sanitizer out and I was doing this. And, you know, and I thought to myself, gosh, you know, we're all vaccinated. Um, you know, everybody's symptom free, um, but I, I'm still anxious. I, I learned and appreciated that this, you know, that this is very serious business. And so it, it really dawned on me here how, um, you know, how much the pandemic's affected us um, and, and, and how much we've sort of been shaped to, to manage these things. And so there's a number of things that might cross our minds, you know, that even as we return and we start to go back and, you know, I can think of walking into a department store the first time and not wearing a mask and seeing some people with a mask and others without it. And they said, if you've been vaccinated, you don't need a mask. But I thought, this is weird. This is unusual. How safe am I here? Um, I, I saw a patient today who's very anxious about returning, is, who's not sure he can do this. Um, questions about, are these people vaccinated? Do I need to avoid them? Um, some people might feel, why are these people so scared? This is not, you know, we shouldn't have a big deal about this. Um, we might even say that guy never got a shot. I know it, you know. Um, and we start to form opinions or ideas about the person. Um, I don't wanna touch that. Do I have to wear a mask here? I mean, I think these are all gonna be very normal and typical reactions as we um, get back into it. So um, there's some, just a few things that I, I wanna put out here that, um, you know, Billy, Father Bill, you were talking about resiliency. Um, I, I consulted with um, some primary care physicians I know. Um, and I think it's really important as we get back into this that we, we first and foremost remember we have to trust the vaccine. Both uh, the physicians said that, you know, our vaccines are 95% effective. They're better than the flu vaccines. And they said that if you would happen to get COVID after a vaccine, said that your symptoms are going to be much less mild or, or much less severe, relatively mild, and the chances of death after the vaccine are very low. And, and I thought that that was a good reminder, um, you know, just to keep in mind with this. Um, we also need to trust our immune system. 
I, and I think I learned this really well um, as an undergraduate, I took a microbiology course and the instructor asked us to take anything you want and just swab it and put it in the Petri dish and let's see what kind of stuff grows and what, what you find. So I had a watch on and I took the watch off and just swabbed the back of the watch. And uh, lo and behold, you know, we stick it in the Petri dish, incubator and all kinds of bacteria growing there. And, um, and, you know, that was the experience for everybody. And, um, and, you know, what it really taught me was that, you know, we are surrounded by all kinds of things, um, bacteria, viruses, um, we have a lot in our bodies. Um, and, you know, we have a pretty darn amusing, amazing immune system. Now, I don't say that to um, uh, make, to kind of minimize Immunocom people immunocompromised. Um, I, I don't say that lightly at all. But I think that for some of us who are very scared, it's very important that we remember that um, our bodies are really well prepared and well designed to handle um, many things that are there. And, and we've, we've done this our whole lives until the pandemic. And I think remembering that sense of ourself and that sense of our relationships is going to be very important as we go back in and have all this fear that's before us. Um, we need to accept our thoughts and feelings about what's going on um, and, and recognize that this is what they are. But um, for those of us who are fearful, I think it's important that we do start to expose ourselves to situations that were familiar and enjoyable. If we find we're still unable to function, then you know, it might be good to um, get some assistance. So I, I have just a few questions up here that might be helpful to know, is it, is it really time to go see a professional? Um, you know, do I feel worse about myself before then, um, than I did before the pandemic began? How reliable is the world? How trustworthy is it? Um, am I gonna be able to fulfill my plans, live the life that I want to? Um, how am I gonna reestablish my relationship with people? Um, especially if I'm really scared to be around them. Do I feel safe around this person? I'm, am I really worried and kind of preoccupied with everybody I know being vaccinated? Uh, is it hard for me to understand other people's points of view or their feelings about life in the pandemic? Um, we may hear some people who were very cavalier. We may hear others who we feel were really, really extreme. And we may have a hard time understanding why they landed in one of those two, one of those two camps. <clears throat> And then finally, you know, am I feeling more anxious, scared or nervous, and I can't get past it? I think the, all of those kind of questions, if you're really thinking about them um, or concerned, might be an indicator it's time to go talk to somebody professionally. Um, I'm gonna end just with a few pictures, just sort of, again, to remind us about what life was like beforehand. Um, we saw people, we shook hands, we got to, uh, together with family and friends. We all sat together around a table. We didn't wear masks. Um, we went to sporting events, uh, sat in close proximity to people. Um, we did that. Um, and there'll be a time when we can do this again. Um, we went to the theater, opera, um, symphony. Um, we engaged in activities together. Um, and this is how life was. And then finally, um, and just sort of to uh, for a little fun from the New Yorker, uh, two people shaking hands. I look forward to sharing colds again. 
um, which is what we did for, prior to the pandemic and will happen again. So um, those are just a few thoughts that I have. Um, and I think now uh, Dr. Brakazuski will be talking with us. So I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. Great, thanks, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, you're the only one I can see right now. So can you give me a thumbs up if you can see my slides? All right, great. All right, um, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy today to, to talk to you all about um, the role of substance use uh, during the pandemic. Substance use is my particular expertise. It's where I get most of my grant funding. It's where I see uh, the area in which I see um, uh, many of my patients as well. Um, you know, the, the first thought about uh, COVID and, and substance use uh, is that it, it greatly increases the chances of, substance use greatly increases the chances of us um, uh, coming in contact with and, and, and getting um, COVID-19 um, for a number of reasons. So um, with many substances, there's a lot of hand to mouth activity, like when you're using tobacco or cannabis um, but also sharing of uh, products across people. So some people share hookah, they share cannabis, they share pipes, they share drinks. And the more you're doing that, the more susceptible you might be to um, contracting COVID. Um, if there was an ever a time uh, to quit smoking, I think now, now would be it. And, and certainly not just cigarettes, but, um, but uh, combustible cigarettes in particular. Um, you know, Smoking of any kind, whether it's cannabis, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, cigars, um, hookah, heroin, all of those increase the chances of uh, contracting COVID due to suppressed respiratory functioning. Um, so many of the, all of the, the substances I mentioned uh, make it more likely that you would have uh, difficulty with, with respiratory functioning, which then makes you more uh, not only more susceptible to getting COVID, but more likely to have more severe outcomes uh, compared to people who um, who don't engage in in any of those uh, smoking behaviors. The case fatality rate among people with a chronic respiratory disease is about three times that of the general population. Um, so it, it's it's a really great time to uh, hopefully stop smoking. Um, and then finally, you know, another way that substance use comes into play with regard to contracting COVID is that um, individuals who struggle with substance use, you know, may not admit to that um, when they're quarantining or when they're getting treatment because of fear of, of stigma, which then only exacerbates the, the COVID illness that they have. Um, what I want to talk about, though, more um, I, that I think is probably more applicable to the folks that are that are on the call, is how um, COVID has increased the susceptibility to engage in substance use. Um, certainly, we've all been stressed to the max over the last 15 months, and stress is a known risk factor for uh, not only substance use in general, but also for relapse. Certainly, loss of income, loss of social supports, loss of social interaction can lead to increases in motivation to consume different substances. Um, many people who struggle with substance use already often have fragile social support networks um, and access to healthy coping strategies. So all of the stress related to the last 15 months is a, a really big risk factor for, for relapse. Um, more generally, individuals who have struggled with mental health in the past or are currently struggling with mental health issues 
um, that can also lead to an increased likelihood of, of using or abusing substances, even if it's not a, a, a relapse, someone that's had a substance use disorder in the past. Uh, as, we, as most of us know, um, substances are, uh, substance use is a great short-term solution to a lot of our problems. It's not so great in the long run, um, but it can very quickly get, uh, make us forget about some of the problems that, we, that we're dealing with. Um, and so if you already don't have a lot of coping mechanisms or you're feeling um, like you, you don't have access to the things that you usually have access to, it's really easy to get alcohol and tobacco and now cannabis. And, and um, like I said, it uh, can, can really help in the short term, uh, not so much in the long term. So we, because of that, we'll, as I'll show some data in a little bit, we've seen a lot of increases in uh, substance use and particularly alcohol use over the last 15 months. Um, you know, and also among uh, intervention options, certainly 12-step um, organizations like AA and NA are generally responsible for the largest decrease in substance use. So if, if, if you're going to pick, if, you know, the intervention that's affecting the most people is generally 12-step. Well, it's difficult to have 12-step meetings when we can't all get together. Um, certainly, AA and NA have done a really great job utilizing the, the same platform that we are right now, but during the beginning of the pandemic, it was difficult to get access to those uh, sorts of treatment resources. Um, in addition, a lot of people who have uh, sort of on the severe end of substance use disorders uh, may need uh, medications for those uh, for for their treatment. So, for instance, having opioid agonist therapy like methadone or buprenorphine for an opioid use disorder. Those medications are generally given at a clinic, not they're not taken home with some caveats. So again, if we can't have interaction with each other, it's difficult to pick up your medication, it's difficult to then get treatment for your disorder, very easy to, to relapse. Um, people were also in the beginning very reluctant to head to the doctor for fear of getting COVID. So they have a choice to make uh, between going to the doctor and fear of, of being in that clinic and getting COVID from somebody else that's in that clinic or getting the medication or treatment that they need for their substance use disorder. Um, <clears throat> so I, I mentioned, you know, alcohol is something that uh, people have readily uh, have ready access to, um, and it does uh, uh, again a, a decent job in the short term of increasing our positive feelings and decreasing our negative feelings. Those are basically the the two uh, drivers of most people what to, when they're drinking is to increase their positive feelings or decrease their negative feelings. In addition, if you already have a positive association or positive expectancies from drinking, so I'm gonna have this, if I have this drink, I will have this positive outcome, you're more likely to turn to that as a coping mechanism. And we've seen that, uh, the, the data sort of uh, bore that out over the last 15 months. So um, just in the week, so the the CDC declared a pandemic on March 3rd, March 11th, 11th or March 13th, 2020, and there was a 54% increase in alcohol sales that following week. Um, online sales for alcohol increased 262% in that same week. Uh, overall, from uh, March until September of last year, overall alcohol use increased by 14%, and there was a particular increase among women of 41% uh, um, of drinking. College students from February to October of 2020, despite uh, some of that time you know, being home uh, for the summer, but we saw increases of 
Um, and that varied greatly uh, depending on whether they also had a, a mental health issue as well. So among college students with anxiety, alcohol use increased by 86% during that time. And among college students with depression or depressive symptoms, alcohol use increased by 180%. Um, so that's, those are extraordinary numbers and, and unlike anything that we've ever seen. Turning to opioid overdoses and opioid use, these are numbers from, um, from the state of Michigan. Uh, so the, the red graph that you see there are uh, opioid overdoses by week um, over uh, 2019. The red is 2019, the blue is 2020. And you can see that the, the whole point of the graph is you can see at any point you look at pretty much comparing 2019 to 2020, we had significantly more opioid overdoses in Michigan. This is basically the same time frame, but we're looking at naloxone administration. So naloxone is a drug also known as Narcan that you can give to somebody if they're having uh, an opioid overdose. And you can see again, the blue representing 2020. And at every point over the last year, uh, we had more naloxone administrations than in the previous year. Uh, this shows an analysis by county in Michigan. Um, if you can see my, uh, oops, no, you can't see my, there it is, there's my cursor. Um, uh, Oakland County is, uh, is right here in, in this orange. And so we had a pretty substantial 20 to 30% increase in fatal overdoses in 2020. And we also, this is uh, naloxone administration. We're also at, at the highest, greater than the 30% increase in Oakland County for naloxone administration. So the two biggest substances that, that were affected over the last year with, with regard to the pandemic have been alcohol use and opioid, opioid use. Those are, the, those are the ones that have increased the most. Now, you might be thinking, well, like, I, you know, I, I, I don't drink that much or like, I, I don't use opioids or I'm, I'm fine. And um, I'm certainly not saying that everybody in the room um, I'm going to argue against that, but perhaps, you know, I'll use this case vignette and a few other things to, to show that maybe this hits a little closer to home um, than we might think at first. So uh, you have a person who, who gets in a car accident and they hurt their back. And uh, the doctor, of course, prescribes opioids for your back pain. So you take one opioid and that helps relieve your back pain on, on day one. It also makes you feel a little bit relaxed. Maybe you feel a little mellow. You might even have a little bit of positive mood. So the next day you wake up in the morning, your back pain is back, right? Because the opioid only lasts so long. And so are some negative thoughts about the car accident that you got in. It wasn't very fun to get in that car accident. Maybe you're sort of having some anxious thoughts about that. So you take your opioid, you get relief from the physical pain that you got yesterday, but you also notice that you get some relief from the psychological distress that you have, the thoughts, the negative thoughts about the car accident. So you repeat this over a 10 day span, and after about that 10th day, and for some, some people, maybe after like the sixth day, you notice that that one pill doesn't necessarily do the trick, right? So you've started to develop a physiological tolerance to the opioid medication that you're taking. So you cheat a little and take one and a half. And then you repeat that for a few days. And then the one and a half doesn't necessarily do the trick. Now, maybe after a couple of weeks, uh, you know, some people may be able to sort of tolerate the stress that they have and move on. But many folks won't. And then you can sort of see how one and a half pills turns to two pills, turns to three pills, turns to looking to other sources uh, for, for getting opioids. Um, and you could, you could sort of replace in that scenario alcohol for opioids and it sort of works the same way. 
Now, again, you might think, well, that's not, that's not me. That's some, I don't know, some uh, 25 year old doctor shopping for pills. But what we have here uh, is a graph of um, drug overdoses, um, particularly through opioids over the last 20 some years. And you'll notice that two things that I'd point out. Um, basically since 2005, the biggest group has been folks who are between 45 and 54. And uh, the steepest increase over this time, and if you look at more recent data, the trend has continued, that it's adults between 55 and 64. So the people who are most at risk coming up in the next few years of drug overdoses are, you know, I don't know what the average age of our parish is, but um, I imagine that we have a lot of folks who fit between 45 and 64. So again, maybe hitting a little closer to home or our families than, than you might originally think. Um, sort of turning to alcohol, this is sort of a, a, a soapbox issue of mine. Um, I think it is particularly in our country, alcohol is something that we, um, obviously that there are a lot of cultural and social issues around promoting the use of alcohol in our country um, and not a lot of attention to uh, alcohol related disease burden. So um, alcohol is responsible for about 3 million deaths every year worldwide. Three quarters of the people who die from alcohol related diseases are men. Um, one in 20 deaths in the United or in, in the world are alcohol related. It's one in 10 in the United States. This is sort of the, the, the big point, the one I just put up for me. And I'm certainly, not, I mean, I, I have uh, lots of grants in opioid use disorder. So I'm not certainly not saying that the opioid epidemic is not a big deal. It certainly is. But we, we've responded, um, uh, you know, with alarm bells for the opioid epidemic at 30,000 deaths per year. Alcohol is ridden along at 80,000 for quite some time. And there's really not as much fervor around trying to get people to, um, uh, to drink less or, or remain abstinent. Um, alcohol alone accounts for 5% of the global disease burden. That's an, incre an incredible thing for one issue to account for 5% of the disease burden around the world is, uh, is pretty outstanding. Um, just a quick little, uh, some more stats. Um, when we talk about, uh, you know, when I ask people like, how much do you drink? And they say, oh, like I have one drink and then it looks like this. Um, whenever you might hear anything uh, about uh, how many drinks should I have a day or uh, how many is okay or how many is too much, this is what we're looking for. So it's a 12 ounce beer, usually one that's about um, six or 7% alcohol, um, four to five ounce glass of wine or an ounce and a half of 80 proof liquor. And the reason I put that up there is especially in Michigan is as um, craft brewing and home brewing has become uh, very popular in our state. Um, people might have, you know, one craft beer, but craft beers are often 10 or 12% and they often come in a pint. So if you're having a pint of a craft beer, that's like one in three quarter drinks. Um, just to sort of keep in mind if, you know, if, if, you're, if your doctor or somebody else tells you, gives you some advice about how many drinks you should, how many drinks is too much or how many drinks you want to have in a week or a day, depending on your, your, um, your uh, physical health and your gender, um, th this is what we mean as far as a standard drink. Um, so what folks sort of recommend um, is sort of staying under moderate drinking. Um, so that would be one drink a day for women and older adults and two drinks a day for men. If you're, if you find, or you, you find someone that you love is drinking more than that, then that might be uh, cause for concern. 
Um, binge drinking, we see, you know, most of this is in college students, but certainly we see these, this among um, middle-aged and older adults as well. That would be having five drinks in one sitting for men and four drinks for women. So again, if, if, you're, if you see folks or know folks that are drinking more than this, um, then that might be uh, some, uh, a cause for concern. And I'll, I'll talk in a second about what, might be able to, what, what you might be able to do about that. Again, if you're thinking like, okay, well, that's not me, uh, that's younger people. 40% um, of people who are over 65 uh, drink, um, at least in the United States. Uh, we recommend that uh, for, again, for older adults, moderate drinking would be not more than one, uh, not more, well, usually one, you know, one drink a day and really not more than two or three a day. You know, older folks have an increased alcohol sensitivity. So that means they have a lower tolerance. It's easier for them to um, get drunk. It's easier for them to um, have some of the other negative effects of alcohol, which then at older age starts to get into some other issues, which I'll mention in a second. Um, certainly older uh, adults take more medications. Um, and so mixing alcohol in those medications is not necessarily great. Um, individuals over 65 have, the, have a less efficient liver metabolism. So again, you're processing the alcohol at a different way and in a more hazardous way than younger people. And older people have less body mass or fat. And that's again, in, uh, that can contribute to uh, more difficulties with alcohol. Um, it also makes a lot of other prevalent problems among older adults worse. So a lot of older adults have high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, liver problems, osteoporosis, memory problems, mood disorders, all of these things, alcohol makes them worse. And you can see in the pandemic, it can become this vicious cycle of I'm stressed out, it's easy to drink and that makes me feel better, but then the drinking interacts with these things. And then I'm, I'm down this sort of negative cycle and all of a sudden I find myself, you know, from from one drink every couple of nights to two or three drinks every night before I go to bed. Um, same thing again among older adults as our roles change from, you know, whether it's from working uh, full-time to part-time or full-time to being retired, um, we see uh, increases in depression, PTSD, and grief when those role changes occur, all of which many people uh, uh, turn to alcohol or other substances to get some short-term relief. Another thing to sort of watch out for. This is a list of contraindicated medications when people, uh, for, for alcohol use. Again, these are all medications that are uh, highly prescribed among older adults. And so if you're using or anyone you love is, is taking any of these or more than one of these medications, mixing these with alcohol can have some pretty disastrous effects, not to mention other substances as well. Um, so, so where does that leave us? Uh, you know, in terms of opioids, uh, you know, uh, definitely uh, uh, I'm an advocate of trying to secure, dispose, those, dispose of those in uh, the, uh, the best way possible, which can be um, usually drug take back days, which are sponsored sometimes by the DEA, sometimes by the county, and sometimes by your local police station. Those are the best place to do that rather than keeping them around or having them flush down the toilet. Um, and also uh, asking for non-narcotic options to treat pain. So, um, you, you know, not to get, uh, not to open up Pandora's box, but, you know, if you get surgeries in other countries, they don't necessarily give you 90 days of, of Percocet. And so um, you know, there are other things that uh, we can use to treat pain besides narcotics. Um, and, and these sort of uh, fit together, you know, leaving them around rather than, um, rather than uh, disposing them uh, in a proper way 
young people can get a hold of them and and so certainly they, they are the ones who are most likely to to not only misuse them but the most likely to get them from someone else who didn't dispose of them properly um, you know, encouraging your family members and friends to, to seek help. If any of the things I talked about today, you're, you're worried about of, a, of for a family member, encouraging them to seek help. Um, as uh, Stephen had pointed out, all the, you know, I think although a, a lot of our practices are full, it's become um, easier uh, with, with the advent uh, or the, the radical uptake of teletherapy to be able to, to see people more easily. This is a website that you can go to to find um, substance use treatment resources. Um, certainly anything I, you know, one of the, one of my favorite things about our, our congregation and Father Bill's mission is to reduce stigma for uh, mental health and substance use. It's certainly a soapbox that, that Julie and I will stand on for uh, as long as we can. So anything you can do to reduce stigma and spotting any of these changes in behavior. If you see one of your loved ones, um, you know, not taking necessarily care of themselves uh, as well as they were not participating in school or work um, to the extent that they were before, starting to see financial issues or becoming more irritable, that could be signs that um, they're struggling with either a mental health or substance use issue. Um, so I'll sort of leave it at that, um, to try to get us somewhere back to, to on time. Thank you, we'll turn to Barry. We just have to make sure you're unmuted, Barry. <coughs> Can people see my slides? <clears throat> yes, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Okay, great. Was, my computer was doing the, <coughs> uh, <laughs> taking its time for a second. Um, so thanks uh, so much uh, for inviting me for, uh, for this panel. Um, uh, my focus is gonna be a bit more on the younger side um, uh, of, of things. Um, and um, I wanted to uh, focus more on youth. Um, and I'm gonna start in the 20 something range and then kind of work our way back the developmental trajectory um, a bit. Um, so as a training director of a doctoral program, uh, most of the folks who come into our program are early 20-somethings. Um, occasionally we have people who are a bit older, um, may have a master's degree or they've decided to have a career change or whatnot. But for the most part, um, our, our, our folks are coming in pretty much from undergraduate or a year or so later. Um, so last spring, a, a year ago, um, the, the, the lockdown process starts. We have to make a massive conversion of everything into online. So we've gone from in-person teaching to online teaching in a week. Um, so it's a huge transition. Um, within a couple of weeks, I am seeing my class depressed. Um, the students are really feeling, you know, like, when are we going to get back to in-person? Like, how long is this going to go on? Um, they, they were uh, stressed out, anxious, finding it hard to pay attention in class, et cetera. Um, and 
after the term was over, I decided to have a couple of extra Zoom sessions just so they could talk about the experience that they're having and to make sure that we've got some support for them program-wise um, uh, so they can, can cope better. Um, then fast forward to this year, the current first year class had a lot of stuff online and um, also uh, a, a little bit of in-person. I actually did teach in-person um, this, this year to, to, the, to the doctoral students. Um, we were all in masks. It was very well socially distanced, but trying to lecture for two and a half hours with a mask is not, a, not real fun. Um, but one of the things that happened over the course of the year is that the students started to feel quite disconnected from the faculty and disconnected from the program, which is the opposite of what we want. We're trying to have first year students become socialized to becoming emerging professionals. Um, and instead what we were seeing is they were feeling distant, um, depressed, et cetera. Again, it was the planning of certain kinds of interventions, meetings and whatnot um, to help them get reconnected uh, to the process and to, to be able to vent and air their concerns so that actually we could address them in a number of ways. Uh, one of the concerns that they were actually having was that um, in our clinic, uh, the first year students have to work shifts for the phone and stuff like that. Well, as you can imagine with the pandemic, the building is just pretty empty. Um, and during this time, they just started to feel creepy about the building being so empty. Um, and got really concerned and very anxious about it. Um, and we needed to develop a sort of an intervention process to be able to help ameliorate their anxiety. Um, so that's just a bit of, of, of a kind of an effect on a group of, of individuals who are coming into our field, um, uh, wanting to become therapists, wanting to become psychologists. Um, so, I thought I would kind of focus or get to the um, focus on youth um, by talking about a survey um, that was published uh, recently um, in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Nursing. Um, one of the things about this survey that's interesting is that the participants are ages nine to 12. Um, so this is not adults who are, who are uh, responding. Obviously parents are giving consent for their children to participate. And the parents are aware of the questions that are being asked. Um, it's a survey of a decent size considering that it was being taken during a pandemic um, of over 300 um, young people. So I wanted to pull out some questions uh, from the uh, survey. Um, hang on just a second, I have a little light issue here, which I'll... Uh, There we go. Sorry about that. Um, I wanted to pull out some questions uh, from the survey just to give you a sense of what this age group was feeling uh, during the pandemic. So they were asked their feelings about the outbreak. Um, almost 60% of them said, I'm afraid to be sick. Um, the idea that getting sick at all during this could mean you've got the, the dreaded disease. Um, uh, young people are not, not going to think with the same kind of cognitive structures that older people do. 
Um, any sickness could be seen as a risk, could be seen as something very bad. Um, I'm afraid for one of my family members to get sick. Three quarters of the children um, uh, endorse that item. Um, I'm afraid of losing my family or friends because of the outbreak. That's almost two thirds of the children were afraid of losing somebody because of the outbreak. Um, we have to remember this is an age group that is in many respects so highly reliant on caretakers and adults. Um, they don't have the wherewithal to manage things themselves. The thought of losing somebody um, is terrifying um, to young people. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of the worst thing that can happen. Um, almost a third of children said they felt lonely or unhappy. Um, and I think that this is an issue that I want to get to in a couple of minutes um, as, a, as a consequence of the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. 82% um, said, I miss my life before the outbreak. And 80%, I miss my friends and my teachers. So they're all experiencing uh, this tremendous sense of loss, um, some degree of alienation, um, confusion about the process. Now, this survey <clears throat> was done about six months into the outbreak. Um, so it was done last year. We were still in kind of a lockdown situation. Um, schools were disrupted all over the country, et cetera. But it was published fairly recently um, in, in the process. Um, now, I am focusing here on questions that are more uh, concerning or alarming, et cetera. Um, there are pockets of resiliency. So there are um, children who were saying that they were doing as well or better during the pandemic than before, but that would be like about 20 to 25% of kids um, saying that. Most kids were saying they were doing worse during the pandemic uh, than they were before the pandemic. Um, the survey also tapped things like um, sleep issues and eating issues. And as we might well imagine, um, children were reporting sleep disturbances um, to a considerable degree, um, just as adults were. Um, I would say for children, the tendency was to oversleep more as opposed to get less sleep. Um, and so in, 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 they began to eat more. Um, and um, um, it's not unusual for kids to start to pack on pounds. Um, uh, one youngster I, I was seeing, um, you know, before the pandemic, and then there was an interruption in the treatment during the pandemic. And then as things started to be able to come back together, um, we were meeting in person, um, we had masks on. And, um, but one of the things that was clear is he had gained a bunch of weight um, in, in, the, in the interim. Um, there had been a significant disruption in school, um, parents were figuring out how to do what they could do. Um, um, he, he was clearly feeling the stress of it, having more sleep problems in terms of nightmares, etc. cetera. Uh, but he was clearly eating more, partly out of boredom and partly out of anxiety. So I thought that it 
would be useful to note some considerations and risks for youth. Um, so all young people need certain elements in their life to maximize development. And what I've done is just listed a few. This is not an exhaustive list, um, but some very basic things. And then I wanted to note the risks because of the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. Um, first, young people need social relationships. Now, at some level that should go without saying, but I think that it's important to emphasize that younger people almost need it more than older people do. Um, older people can find alternative ways of coping um, when they have less social relationships than typical. It's not good, I'm not suggesting it's pleasant or beneficial for adults, but young people need practice in socialization in order to develop, in order to get to the point where they become more fully functioning uh, individuals. And uh, they're developing social skills constantly and primarily in school. Um, and when school is essentially not able to happen in the usual way, and they're trying to Zoom a couple of times a week from home, et cetera, and they're not interacting with their friends, um, they're not having games, et cetera. And it goes beyond just friends that are close to them. Um, children learn to interact even with kids who aren't their best friend, but they deal with on a daily basis at school. They have casual friends, acquaintances, kids they have to do work with, et cetera. All of those things build social skills for children. But during the pandemic, it's like taking kids out of this social network, bringing them at home, and it leads to a tremendous amount of isolation and loneliness. Um, lots of children reported feeling lonely and alienated um, during the pandemic. Um, and essentially, they could kind of retreat into a form of passivity and, 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 a, and almost a feeling of giving up um, in, in a sense uh, during this time. Um, safety is an important factor for child development. Children have to have a safe environment, a safe situation in which to mature and grow. We have a situation with the pandemic where there's an invisible danger. Um, you know, Steve was talking about his microbiology experiences earlier, um, and adults really have the capacity to understand something about a virus and how it can affect and et cetera. But children don't have that kind of cognitive capacity to understand completely what an infection is. Um, this is a danger you can't see. And to some degree, you don't know where it could be and how it could be uh, transmitted. Um, that increased the alertness uh, for children and the experience of confusion um, and a little bit of disorientation around this. Children need education. Um, and yet what happened during the pandemic out of necessity is trying to create a new system of education, um, largely online. Um, but that was an unfamiliar structure 
for children to be the primary experience of learning. Now, children are very accustomed to videos and learning things that way, but to have nothing but a virtual interaction with teachers um, works for some kids and is terrible for others. And the younger the kids, the harder it is for that to be an adequate substitute for being in person. The other thing that kids need is consistency and predictability uh, in their environment. And the pandemic and the reactions response to the pandemic created uh, some level of inconsistency or what we might think of as a kind of weird sameness, uh, which is that you're at home every day, day after day, and one day just kind of bleeds into the next day. There isn't kind of the demarcation well, today is Tuesday, and on Tuesdays we do this in school, and on Wednesdays we do this in school, and Thursdays, etc. Instead, it's one day after the next, after the next, after the next. Um, and I think that also would kind of have some level of disruption um, uh, on children. Um, the P in the PTSD, I think, is important for us to recognize now that the pandemic is ending. Um, whenever people are experiencing intensely difficult situations, intense stress, traumatic experiences, and disruptions in their life, they often show reactions after the trauma or the stress has ended, uh, as, as much or more than they do during the, the, the troubles. So while there are clear indications that children are experiencing a number of mental health problems during the pandemic, I do think it's important for people to recognize as we're getting into a more opened up situation, people are clearly breathing a sigh of relief. If you look at the COVID statistics, you know, they're way down. Things are really looking good. Vaccination rates are high. Um, there, there's a feeling of like, okay, this is going to be something we're going to put behind us. But that doesn't mean that the emotional difficulties are behind us. Um, and it's not, it won't be surprising if some things emerge after the pandemic. Um, and um, uh, so I think that that's important for people to, to be able to recognize that the post-traumatic stress disorder is a, the post comes after the stress. In a sense, in returning to normal, um, kids would, shall we say, have all kinds of ideas and imaginings about how it will be after the pandemic. And it's not unusual for younger people to create a more idealized sense of how the world will be after you've gone through something bad. Um, children in general have a remarkable capacity to hope for the best and to think about the best. Um, but invariably there's going to be some degree of disappointment and disillusionment when you confront reality um, after the pandemic. Um, kids could be hoping, understandably, to reconnect with their friends, to see the acquaintances, see teammates, etc. And even when those things happen, it's very possible that the interactions aren't quite what they thought they were going to be. Um, and uh, kids may experience some degree of disappointment and discombobulation 
um, thinking everything should just be normal, but not quite understanding or feeling a sense of how to interact in the same way uh, anymore. And lastly, parents have been under tremendous amount of stretch, uh, stress during this pandemic. Um, they're responsible for themselves, their work, and they're responsible for the you know, children that they have um, and the folks dependent upon them. Um, and so we really want to recognize that in reconnecting, as we get to this post-pandemic world, it's okay to take things one step at a time. Um, as things open up, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement and wanting to, you know, get back to normal, perfectly understandable. But I think it would be helpful for us to recognize that taking things slowly is okay. Um, you can, uh, you know, not have uh, high aspirations necessarily for how things are going to go or see everybody in the course of a week or two or something like that. Make sure it happens gradually and in a way that's digestible for people. Um, and also recognize that readjustment, which is what we're talking about, is readjusting to the world, is a process. It's not an event. It isn't something that just happens in a compressed time period. It's something that will evolve over many months. Um, this kind of disruption in everyone's life has lasted well over a year. Um, it's going to take time to adjust back to it, and that's fine. Um, it's okay to feel like, gee, I don't feel quite regular some more uh, anymore. Um, and, and to recognize that um, getting back into the swing of things isn't just something that'll happen necessarily instantly or quickly. And I think that takes it for me. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dauphin, Dr. Brakazuski, Dr. Hubrick. These were great, beautiful, wonderful um, presentations and really have helped um, put a lot of um, issues uh, in, in context for us. Um, I know that we have some people that want to ask questions and offer some feedback. It's 8.15 now. I do want to, to maybe try to summarize a couple of things and maybe ask one question of my own. Um, you know, I, I feel uh, to, pick, to just to pick with, uh, uh, with Jordan Brakazuski's presentation on alcohol abuse. Um, I have to say um, I resonated with it. Uh, my father was recovering alcoholic for 30 years and uh, I myself avoid alcohol and I know that I have a susceptibility to um, any kind of intoxicant. So uh, I tend to avoid um, any kind of opioid when I go through surgery or anything like that um, because of that. And so I really appreciate your public health approach to it, Jordan. That's really, really helpful. I guess the question I have, though, is, um, you know, I think, I think from my uh, somewhat naive perspective is I, I think of, of many people who, who engage in problematic behavior with alcohol. And then I think of the alternative, which is really to get them involved with Alcoholics Anonymous. And you seem to hint in your presentation on different ways to approach that, because um, for many of my uh, friends, um, and I include in my friends, parishioners and others, if you would talk to them about AA, that would just be just, just, just mind-blowingly um, 
uh, uh, terrifying. Um, and, 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 and they could maybe take a step here or there. So what are the things that come between those two? Well, I, th I think that's a great question. I think, you know, my, my, uh, my advocacy for AA and NA come, comes mostly from the research literature, which is, you know, which shows that, the, you know, if, if you were going to pick one, not that there is a silver bullet, but if, if you were to pick a silver bullet for particularly alcohol use and, and sustained abstinence, it's having uh, people who support that abstinence in your social network. So if you can get rid of people in your life that, that drink hazardously and bring in people to your life that don't do that and support your abstinence, that's the strongest predictor of sustained abstinence, you know, over time. And so, so one, I would say like, that's where it comes from. So you don't necessarily have to get that through AA or NA. That's just, that's, that's sort of part and parcel with that approach is that you you're organizing your life now around people who support your sobriety. And so um, you don't have to get it through there. It's just a really, it's an easier way to get it there. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, a, a lot of throughout my practice, a lot of people's opposition to AA, well, a lot of people's opposition to AA and NA are, are sort of the two, the two big ones are one, um, I or my loved one went to a meeting and it was awful. Like I didn't like the people. It was really weird. And while it, in, in that case, I would say it, it, it's in some ways, it's sort of like church, right? Like you, you there, just because you're, you, you know, you go to one Episcopal church and you might have, you might get a sort of a vibe or a feeling and that might be good or bad. And you go to an Episcopal church down the road and you get a completely different feeling. I mean, a, a group is only going to be as, as, um, uh, you're only going to find connection in that group to the degree to which, you know, you, you sort of jive with those people. And, and one group of people, one 10 group, you know, 10 people in an AA group here doesn't mean anything about the group that's down the road. And so I'm always trying to encourage people to try out, you know, 5, 10, 15 groups before they find, you know, what group fits right for them. And then, of course, the second roadblock is the, the spirituality piece. And maybe people, of course, in our, in our congregation wouldn't have a problem with that. But there are a lot of people in recovery that don't like the spiritual aspect to AA. And there are alternatives for that. So there's a group called Rational Recovery. There's another group called Smart Recovery. And those are all 12-step groups. They still organize themselves around the 12 steps of AA, but they have sort of taken out all of the spirituality pieces to it. And in some instances, sort of inputted some cognitive behavioral therapy approaches within that 12-step framework. And so I, I think, you know, those are sort of three things that come to mind in terms of sort of overcoming roadblocks to, to specifically AA and NA and other uh, spiritually affiliated 12-step programs. And I, I really appreciate you, you saying that. And I, I wanted to also thank you for mentioning my, my kind of quiet campaign to destigmatize um, mental illness, because, I mean, I view my my father's addiction as akin to someone being born with color blindness. Um, I, 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 I really, I, I'm not ashamed of it in any way. And um, I am not ashamed to admit that I, you know, these are things I have to be aware of being his child. I'm going to have not only some, you know, genetic uh, uh, tendencies, but also some, some psychological tendencies that would, that would make um, it a little bit um, difficult for me to handle uh, intoxicants and, 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 and other things. Pastor, I wanted to turn it to you for a quick question and follow up. I 
the, both of these other um, uh, presentations were so rich. Yeah, we had um, a couple of conversations in the chat that I thought might be interesting to to look into. Um, um, Stephen, uh, there was a question. I don't know if you could answer it, but um, Melinda noticed that uh, the U.S.'s response to, to everything was kind of skewed and over the top and and um, asked a really intriguing question. Are there coping mechanisms that other countries have that we lack? Um, so that that could explain why why it's been so difficult or or do you have any other thoughts about the reasons why the pandemic um, has hit us so hard? And yeah, you know, I saw that question in the chat, and so I had been sitting here thinking a bit about it. Um, so I don't know that I'm going to have a real informed answer at this point. As far as any coping mechanisms that are different here than other countries, I, I, nothing immediately comes to mind. What, what I really thought about, though, was that in this country, um, compared to others, there was such a kind of a, a social political divide they've got attached to the to the pandemic and to um, vaccines. And so I, you know, I think that that the kind of conflict that went around that in the in the in the intensification of the conflict, you know, is, is hard to hear. So wherever people landed on their position about vaccines and and you know how how much precautions they should take, the fact that this was discussed so has been discussed so much and has been so rich in front of us. I, I think that just intensifies the, the conflict around it. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking in part that that could explain why we why we had such a problem here with it. That, that's really helpful. Yeah, because I mean, I do believe that 2020 wasn't limited to a health pandemic. We, we had we had we had major political issues that we were all trying to wrap our heads around uh, and um, and then we had the murder of George Floyd, which has, um, you know, will always be a turning point in in our history, um, and and remembered. And those are those are massive. So yeah, thank you for that. That's that's really helpful for us to remember. So when we talk about post, Barry, I mean, there's a lot of post here. It's post pandemic. It's post. It's post all of these other things as well. Um, um, there was an interesting conversation in the chat about masks post pandemic and um, and and there's um, some folks who are thinking, oh, I'm still going to wear my mask because it's going to protect me, maybe not from COVID anymore, but from everything else that's floating around that I could get like flu and the cold and stuff. So I'm just thinking about re-entry. That was a great way that you were talking about it. And and um, and some of the things we're expecting and disappoint and going to experience is disappointments. Um, you know, youth youth aren't the only ones who are going to experience that. I think adults will too. So I'm just um, wondering, do you have any advice for us as we adults um, who also have you know hopes and dreams of returning to normal and everything, and and we're going to come up against the fact that that normal isn't going to be the same anymore? How do we manage our disappointments? Well, I think that um, we need to try to manage our disappointments by developing different expectations, I think. Um, it, it's, uh, disappointment is going to be related to what it is you think is going to happen. 
Um, and I think if we readjust um, what we think is going to happen, we'll have a different, less disappointment to deal with. I think it's to be more realistic about how the post-pandemic world will be. Um, to enjoy the emerging freedoms and, and, and lack of stress, enjoy that. We, sh we should definitely and do things we like. But to not expect everything to return exactly to the way it was March 19th of 2020 or something like that, because it's not going to happen fast, if ever, at, at some level. To some degree, a lot of things, both the, um, the pandemic and the social um, you know, issues that we've been dealing with, are going to be changing us um, as we go forward. Um, we have to be mindful that we can have another pandemic at some point. Um, so um, I, I think that as we get into um, expanding our relationships, getting back to, to doing things that we were accustomed to do, is to not expect too much out of them. Enjoy the moment and enjoy the time and to try not to make it more than it is at that time. Yeah, I think that I just to pick up on a couple of things that I, I, I will say that um, one thing, just to go back to the question that Melinda was raising, I, having lived in Canada for seven years, even though that was just right across the river, um, I learned so much about the, um, how, how different um, healthcare practices are and also how different research methods are in a different context. Even though it seems like it's nothing, um, the level of alcohol use, everything like that, it all, there all of the, there's all sorts of contextual things that it make it difficult to draw these kinds of international comparisons. Um, and and um, so I don't know if we've coped poorly as opposed to how Canada has coped. I mean, to give one example, we, we, had, um, we had the murder of George Floyd and we had a very unstable political circumstance. But in Canada, they also had the discovery of um, more than 200 bodies at a residential school. Um, and they also had a murder of a Muslim family in London, Ontario. So they've had their own traumas. And, and part of it is that it's hard for us always to do a one-to-one -one comparison is what I've experienced just in my own lived experience of both contexts. Um, the, the second thing I want to just respond to is um, exactly what, what you're saying, Barry. I do think what I heard uh, Amy Graham saying and another participant is, you know, wearing a mask, for example, is actually not a bad idea sometimes. I mean, I don't know about you, but the stunning thing about this pandemic is I didn't catch a cold. Uh, over the last year. I mean, it was kind of cool not to have a cold. Now, and, 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 and what I experienced, and just to tell you, and I, I kept on getting flu shots, thank God, because every time I would do um, Christmas Eve, I would finish Christmas Eve, I'd work Christmas Day, and then I would just, my first thing I'd do on the 26th of December is catch a horrific cold. That it just was, it was just like having, you know, 3000 people shaking hands, staying up late, singing your heart out. It just, you're just going to get weakened and you catch a cold. And, and I, Manisha, you could just confirm or deny this, but I think it's a, like a common thing for clergy. And the question we have to ask is, does it make sense for us to, to take those risks? Has the pandemic helped us to think through um, some of these things as rational decisions? You know, it's, it's kind of, done 
in Asian context that people wear masks on the train, things like that. This is a general question to you all. You know, your, your point's really well taken. Um, my wife and I were, were talking about this the other day, how, you know, um, in other countries, like, well, like over at the University of Michigan, which is so international, and um, you'd see students walking around with masks during the winter. And, um, you know, what once we thought was, well, this is, this is different. Why are they doing that? And they're like, no, they know something. They, they, they know there's an advantage here. So I think coming out of this, there are going to be these things that we take from it and we're gonna be better um, because of it. And, and I, think, uh, I think Barry was saying how we have to appreciate the pandemic has changed us in some ways. And I think that's part of the post too is kind of figuring out, okay, how have we been changed through this and, and how are we gonna be better from this? You know, and that, that's gonna be part of the, the adaptation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't we uh, invite people to make, um, we just have a few minutes, but I wanna make sure. Um, yes, yes, Linda Sachs's father, Bill, wearing a mask in the handshake line is a fantastic idea. I don't know, I, that's the problem. I think that there's, I totally hear you, Linda. Maybe I should get one of those space helmets that you get, that, that you see those. I don't know. It's gonna. It, there is a cost, right? That happens uh, when you do it. Um, that that's uh, it. It, it uh, and there's always a sacrifice. And maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should just put on a lot of hand sanitizer as I'm going through. But all of these are good. Hazmat. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Amy. It's yes. interesting because we're eventually we're going to start doing the common cup again. I don't know when, but like eventually. And, 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 and I just want to remind people that, that in 1917, they had the common cup before the Spanish flu pandemic. And at some point it did return because we all were using it before our pandemic. So, so like, you know, there, there's probably, I, I liked what, what Barry said that there's progression. It's not an event, um, but it's a progression. So I'm, I'm hopeful for. Yeah. And then, and then um, let's, let's, I really want to give opportunities. So for those of you who are here, um, please let us know if you want to ask a question verbally before we start to wrap up. Okay, well, at this point, we will then... I think, I think Father Bill earlier on the chat, Shirley, yeah, no, I, I I muted. I asked her to unmute. Are you there, Shirley? I am, but I'm going to pass. Thank you, because um, um, my, I have questions for all three speakers, so I know we're on a, a limited time here. So thank you anyway. No worries. And what we'll do is, um, you know, we'll put out uh, if you want to uh, email a question, things like that. That would be lovely. And then, of course, you'll see Stephen and Jordan uh, at times as we come in. Um, so if there's any follow up. Uh, please let us know. We'll help you get the questions or get in contact. Um, I want to thank each of you for being here. Um, I do think it is 8.30 and we should probably start to um, uh, 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 wrap up. Unfortunately, this has been, I know that there's a lot of knowledge in this room. We have Amy Ryberg. We have Julie Brakazuski. We have Eric Ryberg. We have um, people who have done incredible heroic work. Um, I want to make sure that I take time to thank all of uh, the psychologists of, of, uh, and counselors 
that we have today. Um, it, this has been um, an extraordinarily uh, stressful time for you all, and you've had to try to bear uh, a lot of burdens. And we all have experienced a lot of people experiencing incredible stress. And, um, and you have uh, stepped in and you've reached out and you've reconfigured and you've had to reinvent, you've had to find new ways to help people. And uh, my hat is off to each of you. Thank you for doing that. And um, as we go forward into next year, uh, my hope is to revitalize the mind, body, spirit, um, uh, lunch and learns that we are doing. And I, I want to let you know that our, our ears are open as to how um, we uh, can negotiate these next few steps. Uh, I was saying to the panelists before we started tonight is that what I'm finding, is, even though we have about 100 people involved in adult education in June, which is an incredible uh, feat um, for us, um, we are, we are um, what I'm noticing is if you say pandemic or post-pandemic, um, people will just tune out <laughs> because people are exhausted talking about the words pandemic and post-pandemic. And so what we're gonna start to do, even though we had a wonderful uh, turnout tonight, we had a wonderful turnout on the, on the 8th of June, um, but what we're gonna do is start to break into smaller pieces some of the, um, the issues around health and wellness that we all have to start to address. And just to package those in some smaller presentations so that we're not trying to come up with a global conversation about a global pandemic. So I wanna let you know that I'm listening for anything that you want to do, um, particularly those of you with background. Um, if you wanna speak, I mean, I think Stephen, you got into some incredible stuff with borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, it would be lovely to have a presentation on that. Um, uh, and, I, and it would be important, I think, for all of us. Um, I think the, the kind of dovetail that you did, Barry, with the work that, um, that uh, Dr. Julie did early on, that was an incredible kind of fitting together. And I, and, I, and I do think that, um, Jordan, your work with substance abuse and with addiction um, is incredibly important right now. Um, uh, you know, the reason kind of why I press the issue a little bit is um, I've at least seen a lot of my friends and um, who just did a lot more consumption of alcohol over the pandemic. And now they're scaling back as best they can. And I think having some kind of conversation about that and how to provide support and how to provide the kind of uh, social uh, connections so that we can think about ways to interact that are, that are, that are healthier is something that we have to, to think about as a, as a congregation always. So thank you all for being here. Um, I'm going to ask Pastor Manisha to close us in prayer and then we'll, we'll stop. But if the presenters could stay behind, we'll just have a quick postmortem. Let us pray. Almighty God, in your infinite wisdom, you have cared for us through a pandemic and through protest and through politics and through all the other things that have individually affected us in our lives. And you have promised us that you are with us in all circumstances and that our future is in your hands. And so we trust you and we believe 
that you will make good come out of it for all of us and especially be with those who have experienced deep trauma. Allow them to find great healing in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Really blessed to have you. And um, God bless you tonight. And I hope you get get yourself moving and in the out, uh, outside and come back to church. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christ Church Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristChurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christ Church Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.